Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to a special holiday edition of The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper, and we begin with breaking news in our world lead. Three people injured in another stabbing attack, this one in a busy shopping district in the Netherlands, according to police who are now asking for help from the public. The new attack coming just hours after a different stabbing in the heart of London. That attack has left two people dead. The suspect killed by police. They are also calling that attack in London an act of terrorism. Let's begin with CNN's Bianca Nobila, who is covering the Netherlands attack. So, Bianca, what do we know at this hour? At the moment, all we know is that an attack happened on Friday evening in The Hague in the, in the Netherlands. This is obviously the key city. It's the seat of the Dutch parliament. It's also the, where the International Criminal Court is based. The city itself has a population of around half a million. And this was a particularly busy evening. As you may be able to see from some of the pictures, it is the Black Friday sale. There were plenty of Christmas shoppers out there on the street. And from what we understand, the attack happened within a department store on Big Market Street. We understand that three people have been injured. They've been stabbed. And we're still waiting to hear more details from the police. As of yet, they haven't given us a motive. But they have said that the situation is, quote, complex. I'm also learning that police are looking for a man between the age of 45 and 50, apparently wearing a tracksuit, and asking anybody who might be able to identify somebody of that description to come forward with more details. But it is definitely a developing situation. As I said, nothing has yet been disclosed on the motive of this attack. But within the context of the other attack in London today, which you mentioned, obviously, there's an increased sensitivity, uh, an increased sensitivity towards this. And we'll be monitoring the situation closely. All right, Bianca, thank you. And we will continue to check in with you, of course, throughout the hour as we learn more. Uh, Just hours before that attack in the Netherlands, a deadly terror attack unfolding in London. Police confirming just moments ago two people have died after a stabbing near the iconic London Bridge. Three others were injured. I am deeply saddened and angered that our city of London has again been targeted by terrorism. It is with the heaviest of hearts that I have to inform you that, as well as the suspect who was shot dead by police, two of those injured in this attack in the London Bridge area have tragically lost their lives. Police officers shot and killed the suspect who was wearing what looked like an explosive device, but they believe that device was, in fact, a fake. Witnesses recorded what appeared to be members of the public tackling the suspect. You're looking at that here, taking away the knife before the suspect was ultimately killed by police. And I do want to warn you, some of the video we're about to show you is graphic. Oh, my God. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is live for us in London tonight. Nick, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the situation has been contained to the best of their knowledge. So what's happening on the ground right now? 
Well, in the next 20 minutes or so, the British Prime Minister will meet with his top security officials uh, in the sort of basement of Downing Street to discuss this unfolding situation. Uh, behind me, though, we just learned from the head of London police that actually the fishmonger hall on the other side of the river there is where they believe the attack began. And you can just see up on the bridge the tent erected by British police uh, where we be- understand the actual uh, killings uh, themselves or the attack on the assailant or the restraining of the assailant seems to have occurred. But But here's how today's events unfolded. Terror returns to London Bridge. Recorded by witnesses from multiple angles, a group of people appear to restrain a man on the ground. Members of the public pull back. Firearms police drag one man away. Then two shots are heard. A male suspect was shot by specialist armed officers from the City of London Police. And I can confirm that this suspect died at the scene. A number of other people received injuries during this incident. I'm now in a position to confirm that it has been declared a terrorist incident. I can confirm at this time we believe a device that was strapped to the body of the suspect is a hoax explosive device. A knife is seen pulled from the scuffle, yet still many ordinary Londoners appear to have thrown themselves at the assailant to restrain him. I also want to pay tribute to the extraordinary bravery of those members of the public who physically intervened uh, to protect the lives of others. And uh, for me, they represent the very best of our country, and I thank them. I was also in the Boston Marathon attacks in 2013, uh, and also a very similar experience while I was at the Marathon sort of 20 minutes or something, I can't remember how long, but just before it actually happened. And sort of a very similar thing of just having a flood of people just running and not really knowing what was happening and just fear, like a huge amount of fear on their faces. And you could feel it as well in the energy of just everyone stressing out. The identity and motive of the suspect remains unclear. Similar horror befell London Bridge in June 2017 when three attackers drove a van into pedestrians and then launched a savage knife attack, some also wearing hoax explosive vests. Police killed the attackers in minutes, but still eight victims died. After that attack, roadside barricades went up in London, some visible in these videos today. Excuse me, what happened? London Bridge would have been bustling at that time with commuters and workers in the city. The extraordinary speed of the police response and reaction of members of the public, a sign of how practised and anticipated the horror of such attacks are in London. Now, of course, the key unanswered question is who was this man? What was his motivation? Terror-related, the police say, but it's unclear what ideology may have been fueling him. And sad to say, too, UK security services have long pointed to mental health, often being a contributing factor to incidents like this. But London Bridge now trying to get back to normal, almost heartwarming scenes of seeing restaurateurs inviting police, patrolling the area here, trying to make people safe in for a cup of tea. But that bridge behind me now still jammed with the buses that were stopped by police as the incident unfolded. You can see the lights still going on there. London, sadly, too used to this kind of attack. Erica? Yeah, too used to it indeed. Nick Payton Walsh live for us in London tonight. Thank you. Uh, as we look at what we do know, as Nick just pointed out for us there, we don't know a lot at this hour about the suspect. But the fact, Paul, that British police are saying this is a terror attack. Again, we don't know the motive. I haven't seen a claim of responsibility uh, to this point anyway, unless I somehow miss something. But based on what we do know and the information that's come out, Paul, where is your mind at this time? 
Well, one interesting detail is this fake suicide vest. And we've seen the use of fake suicide vests in several ISIS-inspired attacks uh, in Europe uh, and in the West uh, in recent years. Uh, One was on that very same bridge two years ago uh, when three attackers wearing fake suicide vests uh, did a knife attack uh, on that bridge and the surrounding area. There was also an attack in January 2016 in Paris on a police station where the perpetrator had a fake suicide vest. And more recently in uh, Catalonia in August 2017, the perpetrators had fake suicide vests. And in those attacks, the reason presumably they were wearing fake suicide vests is because they wanted to be killed by police because they wanted to become martyrs, because in their warped worldview, they wanted to go to paradise uh, for doing uh, that. Was that the case with this attacker in London today? We don't know yet because the police are not telling us what they think the motivation was. They are not specifying yet. Uh, that this was a jihadi uh, attack. What's interesting, too, is the location. Uh, So with all of you, frankly, we have talked far too many times about these types of areas, right? This is well known around the world. It's iconic. Tourists are here. But this is also, you know, this area, London Bridge, very close to the major financial center of London. All adding all of that up, Juliet, um, we talk a lot about protecting A lot of these targets, you know, Nick just laid out for us there some of the barriers that went in place after 2017. That's exactly right. Look, I mean, in any urban environment like this in London, and now we're seeing in The Hague, you are only going to be able to minimize the risk for the public. You will not get it to zero. So how we think about it in security is what kind of layered defenses can you have, especially for such a vibrant area around where London Tower is. Um, So you do things to sort of um, try to stop the high consequence events, including cars that would have caused a lot more damage than a knife. Uh, But you also focus on what we call right of boom, which is after the incident, how fast can first responders get there? You engage the public, as we saw here, and then there's a remarkable response within seconds by the Metropolitan Police, who um, obviously had to shoot to kill because they had no idea uh, what, um, what uh, well, when they see the vest, they have no idea whether further harm uh, may ensue. So that is exactly how you have to think about it. Pr- try to prevent something bad from happening. But if it does, are people prepared to stop uh, more bad things from happening? James, part of what will be key here, obviously, we'll also be speaking to some of the victims. So we know that two people tragically were killed. Uh, It took a while to get information on victims, but we have also learned that three were injured. I imagine what they can tell officials will be key here in putting together this picture. A hundred percent, Erica. And one of the critical things here, too, is, is understanding that bad guys, whether or not they're terrorists and whatever their political ideology, the perversion that they follow is, one of the key things here is, Terrorists and bad guys follow the path of least resistance. They're like water. So two and a half years ago, Paul spoke about the similar attack on that same bridge. Three attackers from ISIS. They ended up killing eight people. They mowed people down with vehicles. The London police have now erected concrete ballers there to separate the pedestrians from vehicular traffic. What now? In this instance, the attacker uses an edged weapon. And Eric, a lot of times people will question and say, well, why do police shoot people with a knife. I mean, why, why, why do they do that? The, the availability of edge weapons and the amount of damage that you can do, we know two people have been killed already and there are a number of others wounded because knives are readily available. They don't require ammunition. You don't need a license for one. Mm-hmm. You can nick somebody. It doesn't matter what kind of shape they're in. So, and, and it's lethal. So this is something investigators are going to be looking at. The forensic piece of this is going to be very critical on that bridge. Mm-hmm. 
And, and Nick, as, there's been a lot of talk today about uh, Britain lowering its terror threat level at the beginning of November. I talk about whether people were maybe off their guard, but, but I'm curious, too, you cover this so well and so much of it. Is there also the chance that in lowering that threat level, Nick, uh, it may in some ways inspire people to carry out an attack because they may think the guard is down? You know, I, I have to say, in this case, the attacker here, this lone assailant, as best we know at the moment, chose absolutely the wrong place because it was an attack that over, over a location that had been chosen before. And perhaps that was a motivating factor. Perhaps he also thought that he could kill a number of people uh, by going to the same location. But the police already uh, are very heavy in that area, the financial district. We've heard the mayor and, and, the, and the prime minister talk about the and, the, and the, uh, the, the police commissioner as well talk about the city of London police. The city of London police and the metropolitan police came together. The city of London, the financial district, right at the end of the uh, bridge there it is an area that has been targeted before in the past by other terror groups. Um, the, the police presence and capability and capacity and ability to move swiftly um, is well known that, that, that on this case they were on the scene and taking care of the attacker within five minutes is, is substantial. There are other places that that attacker could have gone to that would have been perhaps harder for the police to reach for a number of reasons and let's not speculate about where they might be that they could have had a higher death toll. So I think in this case, the attacker chose the wrong place and he chose the wrong place as well. And I would add to that London, because it's very clear from what we saw today, not only are the police ready, but civilians on the street, passers-by, right. are ready to step in and take them down. The public stepping in. We're going to continue our coverage of this breaking news, not just the stabbing attack in London, but another in the Netherlands just hours later. Stay with us. We are back with our world lead. Just moments ago, a Dutch state broadcaster reporting there is no indication of terrorism in the stabbing in The Hague in the Netherlands. Uh, a short time ago, that coming, uh, that stabbing, three people stabbed in The Hague. That happened just hours after a deadly stabbing attack in London, which is being investigated as a terror attack. That attack in London near the iconic London Bridge. Again, two people killed in that attack. Uh, three others wounded. The suspect was also killed. Um, as we look at this, of course, it's tough to ignore that this is the holiday season. We know that in the Netherlands, uh, as we're told by our reporters there, this is, of course, the height of Black Friday shopping, which has made its way to Europe at this point as well. Uh, this incident happening in a department store in London, uh, not in the middle of holiday shopping, but we are in full holiday mode. And that, of course, Juliet begs the question for people back here in the U.S. about what they should be doing uh, as they're out and about. We can't forget the Christmas market incident in Germany from a few years ago. That's a, that's exactly right. Look, the, you, we just have to assume that there is some sort of terror attack. The greatest threat here in the United States is white supremacy is um, is a persistent and consistent, but not existential. So what I mean is there is always going to be a level threat, especially given uh, the prevalence of guns um, in our nation. That means um, that means that people need to be aware and they need to be conscious. But also public safety is also ratcheting up because they are responding to different threat levels, different intelligence um, assessments, and, of course, the holiday season. So, um, you know, I, uh, I tell people not to change their plans. Uh, there is no reason to um, at this stage and to uh, continue forward, because when you have a threat that is sort of consistent and persistent but not specific, uh, you, um, what do you 
going to do otherwise? I mean, just stay home until uh, until there's world peace. It's just not going to happen. And so people have to just be rational um, and realistic about um, about where they are in their surroundings and then also, uh, you know, push government as it does to be able to respond if something were to happen. Nick, there's been so much talk for the last few months about, uh, you know, we've been told the ISIS caliphate uh, was defeated, that al Qaeda is floundering. Um, and yet the terror groups that people have, have heard of may not be as strong, but they are certainly still in existence. Yeah. Is there I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, look, I, I mean, there will be a concern and there is a concern and there has been a concern going back to when, you know, hundreds of, of uh, radical minded youngsters went from both Britain and, and many of the other European nations as well. And the concern was when their caliphate was defeated, as it is territorially, not ideologically, that many of them would try to return home. But I think the reality is that the numbers returning back to Europe have been seen to be to be dropping off. Therefore, the, the perceived threat of those coming back and the ability for intelligence services to step up their readiness to have more opportunities to be able to cope with those increased levels. Um, they're, they're at that stage now where they're seeing those levels of returning uh, potential ISIS uh, fighters and supporters. Um, they've seen those levels drop off. So they're, they're, they have a better handle on them. That doesn't mean people won't get through the net. We know that mm -hmm. uh, the lead attacker, uh, the, uh, the attack on London Bridge in 2017 had been under the watchful eye of British intelligence services. Then they uh, shifted their attention. We don't know anything about this particular attacker, but definitely that perception exists that um, that threat was there. Perhaps the, the biggest concern is that the, all these guys and, and the women as well who went off to fight in Iraq and Syria form networks and it's hard to sort of track those networks as they come back. But, but the reality is that the perception of the threat and the reality of the threat had been, had been dropping off. Paul, there's also the, the the possibility, especially from what we know at this point, that this is someone who may not have been party to any terror group. This is called a terror attack, but this person has not been linked. The suspect, this could be somebody who was inspired, perhaps, by something online, whether it be one of those well-known terror groups or something else. Absolutely. Um, there, there, absolutely, there is that possibility. And I think we're only going to learn more um, in, in, in the days ahead. I mean, the first thing that the British will have to do is identify um, the uh, attacker. And from there, they can look at social media accounts, look at their uh, network of contacts to see if there is some kind of interconnectivity with any kind of extremist group or even a terrorist group. There's been no claim of responsibility so far by any terrorist group, nothing from ISIS. Um, in the last week, we have seen a massive takedown of ISIS propaganda uh, uh, over the, uh, on the internet, from, which was coordinated by Europol. Uh, so it's possible we haven't heard from ISIS uh, because they're finding it much more difficult this week to put propaganda out. All right. Appreciate all of you joining me with your expertise. We're going to continue to monitor this breaking news, both out of London and The Hague. So we'll stay on that top of that for you. Meantime, back in the U.S., Democrats who are waiting on the biggest RSVP yet in the impeachment investigation, also sending out some new information on that deadline today. That's next. Welcome back to our politics lead. The White House now has one week to decide whether to participate in the Judiciary Committee's impeachment proceedings, which kick off next week on Capitol Hill. As CNN's Alex Marquardt reports, this comes amid new questions about the testimony of a key witness, one the president claims clears him of any wrongdoing. 
A new showdown brewing on Capitol Hill. The Democratic chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, this afternoon sending a letter to the president, asking him to reply by next Friday, saying whether he'll participate or not in the next round of impeachment hearings. No response so far from the White House, but Trump is not expected to be there. Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham saying Wednesday the president has done nothing wrong and the Democrats know it. When you complain and complain and complain and then you have an opportunity to to put your story to the American public and you don't want to do it and you don't want to be subject to cross-examination yourself, it shows you don't have a very good story and a very good defense. This coming week, the Judiciary Committee is set to take the baton as the impeachment inquiry moves into a critical new phase. They're now tasked with drawing up articles of impeachment based on the historic hearings earlier this month with current and former officials with roles related to the Ukraine scandal. I think there's a mountain range of evidence that has uh, come to light through public testimony, through the private depositions that I've had an opportunity to listen to. The House Intelligence Committee is expected to release their report detailing what was uncovered covered during their eight-week investigation. Nadler will use that as a guide, basing the articles of impeachment on those Ukraine-related charges, that the president was trading a White House meeting and military aid for Ukraine with investigations that he wanted for political purposes. Democrats are also mulling adding additional articles of impeachment, including an obstruction of justice article based on the Mueller probe. Across the board, Republicans have stood by the president and bashed the Democratic-led process. This will be the first partisan impeachment in the history of our country. I think uh, Chairman Schiff and Speaker Pelosi knew from the very beginning what, how they would vote and what they were going to try to prove. Another of the president's efforts to defend himself is also eroding. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Trump saying he told Ambassador Gordon Sondland on September 9th, right before the military aid money was released, he wasn't demanding anything of Ukraine. But no other witnesses or records have confirmed that call took place. And Sondland testified there was quid pro quo and, quote, everyone was in the loop. So to be clear, Erica, there are now two deadlines that the president has to respond to, one on Sunday, responding whether he will attend uh, or participate with a lawyer in the hearings in the Judiciary Committee on Wednesday. And then there is that second deadline on Friday, December 6th, whether he or his lawyers will participate in the proceedings going forward. Erica. Alex Marquardt, appreciate it. Uh, as we look at we, where we are at at this point, uh, it does seem perhaps unlikely that the president or his attorneys will participate. But, Brendan, by ignoring this, uh, can can they still complain about the process? And if so, where is the win in that for the president, specifically beyond his base? Well, I, I know that they will. I don't know if it's rational, but they will continue to, to make that argument because it's the one that's been working for them. If you have to, if you think about what their goal all along has been, has been to hold the Republican base so that you have zero Republicans voting for them. They've played victim the entire time, and frankly, it has worked. I, I will be shocked if there are a single Republican votes for impeachment, and it is because the president has been hammering the base, saying this has been an unfair process. His megaphone is, frankly, much bigger than anything Democrats have been able to do, and it's worked for him, and he's probably going to get out with an entirely Democratic vote on this. And in terms of the process, as we look at where we go next, Karen, I understand why the point is to start the way that we're starting on Wednesday here, Mm -hmm. where Democrats essentially want to prove that there is a constitutional basis for what they are doing as they move forward here. Um, But how does that play out with the public? I mean, how does that bring people in, which which 
they're still trying to do. Well, I think, look, there's been so much misinformation and disinformation coming from the White House and trying to muddy the waters and coming from uh, the Republicans, you know, again, trying to argue about process, but not necessarily on the substance. So I think the uh, goal here for Democrats is to try to reset a little bit so that everybody, because, you know, when we're talking about a constitutional responsibility, when we're talking about a threat to our democracy, I think they feel it's important to, as I say, reset and then go forward with the rest of the conversation and pointing out, you know, the various uh, reasons for these various articles of impeachment. What's interesting, though, is, as you point out, more facts, move forward, talk about the process. As Brendan points out, the president's megaphone Mm. is oftentimes much larger. And, Ron, as you weigh those two things, uh, how, how do you square those? Because as we've seen in a number of different situations, despite the facts being what they are, those are blatantly ignored sometimes. And it's the made up version that gets the attention. Well, look, I think the key variable for the Democrats as the hearing moves into the next stage is the gap between the share of people who say what the president did in Ukraine was wrong, which has always been higher than the share that says that they support his impeachment and removal. And I think closing that gap, convincing more Americans that what he did crosses the threshold for the unprecedented action of removing impeachment is unprecedented, removing a president from office is realistically, there's only so far they're going to go in that. I mean, don't forget, we're, we're right around 50 percent of the country saying mm-hmm. that he should be impeached and removed. That's higher than it much higher than it ever got under Clinton, higher than it ever got for Nixon until the very final poll before he resigned. So there's probably limited upside movement that's possible given the divi- underlying divisions in the country. But I do think the key for them in this hearing, in these hearings is convincing more of the people who believe this was wrong, that he was acting in his personal interest, not the national interest, that in fact it crosses the constitutional threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. Sarah, there are also these questions about Gordon Sondland now, which, which Alex talked about in his piece. Um, the Washington Post pointing out that his testimony runs contrary to both Tim Morrison and Bill Taylor, uh, writing specifically, the confusion muddies the testimony of a key witness who's been cited repeatedly by both sides as they press opposing arguments about the president's actions. The fact that he is this key witness that both Democrats and Republicans have found something they really liked in his testimony. How significant is it that now it's all being called into question? I mean, I think it's somewhat significant, but I also think that everyone knew that Gordon Sumlin was a problematic witness. After he testified behind closed doors, he had to go, he had to amend that testimony. When he showed up and he appeared before the cameras for that public testimony, he was pretty forthcoming about the number of things he suddenly did not remember. He pointed out that he's not a note taker. He's never been a note taker. And of course, we all know that this is a, you know, a political person who was handpicked by the president for the job he's in. So there are a lot of things that were already problematic about Gordon Sumlin. I think what you have to do, though, is you have to look at the totality of the evidence that we've seen in these hearings. And aside from some discrepancies with Gordon Sunland, we've heard a remarkably consistent story from all of these other witnesses who have come forward. An excellent point. Uh, well, as we move forward, the president is now, we know, impeachment aside, teasing a possible deal with the Taliban. Here's the thing, though. It's a deal that only he seems to know about. Uh, we were getting close and we pulled back. We didn't- In our politics lead, it turns out when President Trump announced to the world peace talks with the Taliban were back on, he may have been speaking a bit too soon. CNN's Caitlin Collins has more on the mixed messages. President Trump is back in Florida today after a top secret trip to Afghanistan. The Taliban wants to make a deal. The president was off the grid for hours, unnoticed until he landed in the combat zone for the first time, where he announced that peace talks with the Taliban are back on. The Taliban wants to make a deal and we're meeting with them 
and we're saying it has to be a ceasefire. Those talks collapsed in stunning fashion less than three months ago when he scrapped a secret meeting with Taliban leaders at Camp David. They're dead. They're dead. As far as I'm concerned, they're dead. Details about the revived talks are still spare. And one official tells CNN the U.S. is still in the process of even restarting them. While questions about a ceasefire go unanswered. If they do, they do. And if they don't, they don't. That's fine. The Taliban seemingly caught off guard by the president's announcement. A spokesman telling CNN, our policy regarding peace talks is the same as it was. Trump also telling reporters he wants to reduce the number of troops in Afghanistan to 8,600, down from the approximately 12,000 currently stationed there. That day is coming, coming very soon. The Thanksgiving visit could give the president a boost in military support amid strained relations with the Pentagon. I wanted to take his pin away, and I said, no, you're not going to take it away. Trump clashed with military leaders after he intervened in several high-profile war crimes cases, including Eddie Gallagher's, the Navy SEAL who was convicted of posing with a dead ISIS fighter's body, but acquitted of more serious charges, including threatening to kill SEALs who reported him. That episode led to the firing of the Navy secretary, Richard Spencer. What message does that send to the troops? You can get away with things. Uh, We have to have good order and discipline. It's the backbone of what we do. Now, Erica, coming to an agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban was pretty complicated last time. So now with the president saying that a ceasefire is on the table, there are more questions being raised because, of course, a ceasefire would be seen as a pretty big concession by the Taliban that they weren't open to less than three minutes ago, raising the question of why that's something that they would be amenable to now. It is an excellent question. Caitlin Collins, live for us. Caitlin, thank you. Three handshakes, two summits, and no deal. North Korea continuing to test missiles and President Trump. In our world lead, it was just last month that Kim Jong-un praised his relationship with President Trump as special and close. But now the North Korean leader seems to be singing a different tune, testing two projectiles from what has been described as a super large rocket launcher, sending a perhaps not so subtle reminder to Mr. Trump that he has just one month left to strike a nuclear deal or negotiations are off the table. Joining me now is Congressman Gregory Meeks of New York. Sir, good to have you with us. You also serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, As we look at what is happening with North Korea, how would you advise the president to handle this looming threat? But, you know, the president should have been doing all along, instead of being friendly and saying that uh, Kim Jong-un is his best friend, is working with all of our allies, particularly, you know, when you look at South Korea and Japan, et cetera, so that we could put mass uh, 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 force in regards to unity and putting North Korea on hold with anything, saying that putting the pressure on them, uh, whether it's through, uh, through trade and other matters, uh, but working collectively together, as we mm-hmm. did with Iran, uh, for example, as, as, as President Obama did. It was that collective pressure that made them decide that they were not going to deal with uh, nuclear weapons. We need to do similar here, going in alone, saying that this, roof, this ruthless dictator is, our, is his best friend and buddy uh, when he does nothing uh, to step forward has just put him in the limelight, giving him the national attention. Uh, in fact, he's used the president to gain that. Uh, and you, nothing. And, and so I also think that we should resume our uh, our uh, mission of having uh, war games in the area with our allies. I think that's important also because the president has just continually delayed them. 
Really quickly, I'm going to give you a yes or no on this because I want to do sort of a rapid fire here. Um, do you think there's a chance that the president would change course at this point? Uh, with his behavior, no. Okay. Uh, let's move on now to to Afghanistan and what is happening there. The president making a surprise visit to troops on Thanksgiving Day yesterday. But during that visit, also surprising folks with the news that he had apparently reopened talks with the Taliban, uh, which seemed to come as a surprise to members of his own administration. As I mentioned, you serve on foreign affairs. You're a senior member of the committee. Were you aware of a restart? No. And, you know, you might not be surprised to learn that the president lies. And he lies to try to, you know, help his campaign. Uh, you heard the Taliban say that there's nothing there. Uh, and he's done this before. So the president, he lies. That's what he does. He's lied over 10,000 times, according to the Washington Post. And, you know, those of us who are just listening for ourselves. So he lies and he lies and he lies, uh, trying to fool the American people, which is endangering. He's a clear and present danger uh, to uh, uh, our di diplomacy and our foreign policy. I know you have a number of strong feelings about about the president, uh, as you just mentioned. You also called him this week a mob boss. You've said he's involved in a cover up. Let's just get your take on impeachment quickly. Um, what are the conversations that you're having with your Republican colleagues at this point? Well, if you talk to my Republican colleagues off the record, they're all very concerned. Now, the only reason why you don't see more Republicans or any Republicans stepping up is that those that were in moderate districts that where folks are go swinging back and forth. We happen to have defeated them all as a result of Donald Trump in the 2018 elections. So they are now in these basically gerrymandered all Trump districts. So they're concerned about their own elections uh, on the House side because they have virtually no Democrats or independents in them. They were all defeated. And so, though they don't want to speak up, you only hear a few because they know that the camera of history is rolling. And they don't want their actual voice to be heard. They think they can get away with just their vote. Uh, trying to protect the president because of the gerrymandered districts of which they represent. But I tell them the camera of history is rolling and people will be watching 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 years from now to see how you voted uh, to support this most corrupt mob boss uh, and danger and clear and present danger to the American people as president of the United States. Congressman Gregory Meeks, Democrat from New York. Thanks for joining us today, sir. Good being with you. On drama, low on direction, why staffers and aides worry one Democratic campaign is swiftly unraveling. In our 2020 lead, you can't run the country if you can't run your campaign. That's how one former aide describes the struggles facing Senator Kamala Harris's 2020 bid. Just one of dozens of sources who tell The New York Times the Harris campaign has no clear strategy to win and is grappling with multiple issues, including infighting, power struggles and a shrinking bank account. Ron, as we add all of this Ooh. up and also put out there that we also learned in the piece that they apparently haven't even had the cash to do their own polling over the last couple of months, which makes it tough to find a focus in many ways. Yeah. What do you do with all of that leading into Iowa? Well, it's a remarkable story, first of all. And I think for all of the tactical mistakes that are laid out in there, there was a bigger structural strategic mistake in this campaign. I mean, Kamala Harris could have run as a centrist former prosecutor. Instead, she bet that the Warren Sanders wing of the party was ascendant, tried to move in that direction. And then it spent really the whole campaign kind of stumbling over herself, trying to get back to closer to what she has been throughout his career and her, her career. And as a result, I think voters on kind of both sides of that ideological divide have not felt fully comfortable with her. It's tough to kind of recover from that. But look, she's all in in Iowa, and that is probably the reality that she faces, a decent showing in Iowa or not much to go on beyond that.
We'll see how it goes there. Uh, Sarah, we're also learning uh, from our own Arlette Science today from the Biden campaign that they are entering a new phase at this point, this eight-day bus tour uh, focusing on Iowa. Uh, and polls show that Biden is actually losing support there. But they're saying, uh, we feel like the more Joe Biden is one-on-one with voters, the better that is for us. Basically, Joe Biden needs FaceTime, Sarah. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, one of the, the problems that Joe Biden has is he tends to put his foot in his mouth. But one of the things he's really, really good at is retail politics. He has this innate ability to connect with people um, on a deep level when he's, you know, the first time he meets them. And it is really stunning for people who watch him on the rope line. They say this over and over again. Yeah. And so this does seem like it is a good use of his time, although certainly alarming to be someone like Joe Biden and, and to have your fortunes shifting the way they have in Iowa. Uh, and uh, Karen, as we look at this, Mayor Pete Buttigieg is out with a new ad where he is going after candidates like Warren and Sanders talking about college for all. His more centrist approach is actually helping him a lot in Iowa. Yeah, it really is. I mean, look, he saw the opening and he has gone for it, right, in terms of trying to be that moderate, uh, you know, sort of candidate. He saw the others going to the left. He kind of he saw Kamala Harris wasn't able to pick that up. And so he, you know, ran, just kind of went for it and it's working for him. And, but I do think we're going to continue to see a bit of volatility uh, in Iowa and the other four early states because voters, have, as our own poll showed this week, voters are still not quite sure who they like the most. Still a lot of questions there. And Brendan, it is one thing we, we touched on briefly this week, but what's fascinating, even as we look at Joe Biden, he continues to be the main target in many ways for the president for a lot of Republicans. Mm. So they clearly see something in Joe Biden, even if maybe Iowans do not. He is certainly the person that if you're Donald Trump, you don't want to have to face. He, he, he can run down the middle in the way that really none of the other candidates can, maybe other than uh, Mayor Pete, but he, he can't uh, get any votes from, from African-American voters. That's going to be a, a tough road for him. So much to come. And we're what? Is it 60? Now I lost count. Thanksgiving turkey. I lost count of how many days till Iowa, but it's in the 60s. I know that. Thank you all. Appreciate you joining us on this Friday afternoon. Be sure to tune in to CNN this Sunday for State of the Union. Democratic Senator and 2020 candidate Amy Klobuchar joins the show, as well as Judiciary Committee member, Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. All that happening at 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. Eastern. Our continuing coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.